This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Evan Roberts podcast on a Monday morning. I record this on a Monday morning because personally, I could not talk about baseball. I could not physically give you a fair breakdown of this three-game series against the Arizona Diamondbacks after I was punched in the balls the way the Nets lost to the Celtics. But this is not a Nets podcast right now, so don't worry. You're not going to have to hear me bitch about anything from that game. Overall, it was a good weekend for the Mets. It started beautifully. I mean, opening day couldn't have been a better script. Obviously, the weather was gorgeous. You had the Tom Seaver statue, and I admit, I was surprised how many people showed up for the statue ceremony. We had mentioned on the air, uh, I thought maybe a few hundred people, only because it's 10.30 in the morning. Tom Seaver, as much of a legend as he is, still pitched before most of our times. So if you've got to be basically in your 50s to remember Tom Seaver, to have watched Tom Seaver, so as much as I respect him, as much as I love him, I would have thought the motivation to see the unveiling of a statue would come from those who watched him, not from those who learned about him. And I was dead wrong because that area in front of City Field near the home run apple, now where the Tom Seaver statue is, was packed. It was so filled up. And me and my dad were on the outskirts of it. And I don't know what this thing is called, but there was like a pole, but not a big pole. I'd say about four feet. And it was circular. So it was about two feet wide, three feet wide. So what I did is I climbed the pole, and that's how I was able to take my aerial pictures, even though my pictures sucked. They were not great pictures, but I was able to see the unveiling of the statue. Uh, The ceremony we barely heard. If you were there, you probably didn't hear anything because the speaker system was not ideal. So when Steve Cohen was speaking, I heard a random boo, and I wasn't sure what it was about, but I put two and two together and assumed he must have thanked the Wilpons. And after the ceremony was over, after the day was over, I went back and I rewatched it or watched it really for the first time. And that's exactly what happened. And that smirk on his face after the crowd booed the Wilpons. Oh, to bottle that up. Because you know what he's thinking. Either way, it's not about the Wilpons. It's about a, a great ceremony, a beautiful looking statue, a great turnout by Met fans. We had beautiful weather. And then you had a baseball game in which I think from the moment it began, and maybe this is just being a Met fan, you know, being a Met fan, we have certain negative tendencies where no lead is safe, where we're expecting that brutal loss, where we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. But one of the positive things about being a Met fan is there's this weird confidence on opening day, especially the home opener. Basically, most of my adult life and my child life has been involved seeing the New York Mets win a game to open up Shea Stadium or City Field. There's very few losses. There's one that jumps out at me, though. One that still haunts me. And that was Tom Glavin's Met debut. 
at Shea Stadium against the Cubs in like 38 degree weather, and he got bombed. And I think the Mets lost the game 13 to two. But outside of that, the Mets win on opening day. So the game itself felt like just waiting for the inevitable, just waiting for that inevitable. All right, we're gonna kick their ass. You know, Chris Bassett got into trouble in the first inning. Was never very nervous about that. And then the Mets tacked on a run in the first. Pete Alonso had a sacrifice fly. He's been an RBI machine. Had another sacrifice fly in the third. Then the home runs start bombing. Robbie Cano goes deep. Francisco Lindor hits a pair of home runs. Starling Marte hit a bomb. And basically, opening day at Citi Field was one giant party. It was a continuation of the statue reveal. So it was one of those things where first pitch on, you just knew they were going to win. As far as the reactions you know, the ceremonies that they do where they announce all the Mets on the field. I always love kind of analyzing who gets the biggest ovation. And I had mentioned on the air a few days ago, I thought Buck would be up there. I think there's so much excitement about this manager and more on him a little bit later on in this podcast because he certainly had a big impact in Sunday's game. He got one of the bigger ovations, but to me it was probably Jake. Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer got monstrous ovations. Robinson Cano got the most lukewarm ovation. Basically, Met fans don't want to necessarily boo him yet. They want him to suck, and then they'll boo him. More on that later, too. But he got a, yeah, I guess you're on the team ovation. Even when he hit that home run in the fourth inning, which I was surprised got out, he shot one to left field. The crowd is almost like, all right, I I, I guess guess we're going to cheer you. Because Robbie Cano has a few things going against him. Number one, he's not very good. Number two, he's a leftover from the Brody Van Wagenen experiment. Three, he's a Yankee, and you know as Met fans, it you know always takes a little bit longer, if never, to warm up to a prominent New York Yankee. And then obviously the steroid stuff, not to bury the lead, but Robbie Cano is not a beloved Met at this point, but he does hit a home run on opening day, and opening day was one giant party. Chris Bassett continues to throw the baseball really well. He's fun to watch. Bassett's fun to watch for a few reasons. Not only does he mix it up with like 18 different pitches, but I don't know if you noticed this, and I'm not sure if the, the broadcast mentioned it because I was at the game. He alters between stretch and full windup with nobody on base. And I'm not sure if there's a method to it or if there's a rhythm to it or if there's a reason for it. But in that first at-bat against Dalton Varsho, I picked up on it. He's working from the stretch, which we see a lot of starters do now. It's kind of a common thing now for starting pitchers to universally work from the stretch. So that's not that you know, crazy as much as it may have been five or 10 years ago. But he was mixing it up. But he's fun to watch. And he gives him six quality innings, which in this day and age is basically a complete game. The Mets starting pitching continues to be marvelous. Yeah, Sean Reed Foley made you sweat. And not sweat in terms of losing the game. Sweat in terms of effing up your Friday night plans. Because the game should have been over about 15 minutes earlier. And Sean Reed Foley's walking back-to-back guys. He's struggling to throw strikes. But when you've got a 10-to-1 lead, it's easy to be relaxed. I thought it was very important and great for Lindor to get off to a good start because it's not that Met fans are looking to boo Francisco Lindor. I'm certainly not looking to boo Francisco Lindor. I'm not a boor to begin with, but I'm not looking to hate him. But he is on a shorter leash because of the contract, because of the expectations. And because of the fact his first year here, for the most part, wasn't very good. So yes, Lindor finished the season a lot stronger last year. I don't want to ignore that. But he takes an 0 for 5 on opening day. 
it's a bigger deal than others because the Met fan's going to turn on him relatively quickly. I don't think he was ever going to be booed on opening day, but it's important for him to get off to a good start and for him to hit a couple of home runs on opening day was great. When he hit the second home run in the eighth inning, I had thought initially the crowd was begging him for a curtain call, and he never went out for a curtain call, but my dad made a good point. I'm actually kind of agreeing with him. The crowd wasn't necessarily begging him for a curtain call. The crowd was cheering on Alonzo because the Mets had just hit back-to-back home runs, Marte and Lindor, and it sounded as if the crowd was jacked for a back-to-back-to-back, which is kind of weird. But now that I think back on it, most of the cheers was Pete, Pete, Pete. So I don't think Lindor snubbed the Met fan necessarily by not giving a curtain call. Plus, I don't know, is that really a time for a curtain call? 10 to 1 in the bottom of the eighth inning? When Lindor, if Lindor, but no, I'll be confident. When Lindor hits a go-ahead home run in the seventh inning or later, then it'll be the perfect time for a curtain call. So I don't think he was snubbing Met fans by any stretch, but just a... A great opening day. Great opening day. I was surprised J.D. Davis was in the lineup uh, after the news came out that Brandon Nimmo and Mark Canna had tested positive for COVID and were going to be off the team for a few days. I figured, oh, this is it for Dom. Dom's going to play every day. Now you could play Dom. You could play Cano. It won't be as much of a fight for at-bats, but I guess Buck's reasoning is he wants to get J.D. Davis at-bats, especially because they haven't faced that much left-handed pitching. The problem with this Dom-Cano thing is that Dom isn't hitting. So as much as I've come to his defense and as much as I want to see him play, right now Robinson Cano, not that Robbie's hitting the crap out of the ball, he's not, but he does hit a home run on the home opener. Dom's done very little. So this is still a big moment for him because the longer Can is out, the longer Nimmo's out, it does create an opportunity for Dom Smith, especially Jeff McNeil's played a pretty good left field. So you can run McNeil in left, Cano at second, and then either or Dom Alonzo first base DH, even though Pete's running into a problem, he keeps producing at DH. Uh, I, 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 by the way, I don't think that's a thing at all. Like when we see splits of a guy performing better in the field versus DH, sometimes we try to make a big deal of it. I think last year with the Yankees, Giancarlo Stanton, once he started playing the outfield, started putting up really good numbers in the outfield for the most part. For the most part, I mean, there are going to be some exceptions. I do think it's a coincidence. And in the case of Alonzo, who's been a first baseman, 19, 20, 21 predominantly, I I can't imagine it's a thing. He's a productive baseball player. Pete's already proven that. So I doubt there's really any difference between his production at first base and DH. To the Saturday game, the Saturday game was very, very frustrating because Look, Zach Allen's a, a decent young pitcher, but you got to the bullpen in the fifth inning. I'm lamenting, by the way, that here we have a pitcher's duel between Carlos Carrasco and Zach Gallon. Both guys are throwing the ball really well, and they're both out of the game by the fifth inning. Gallon after four, I know it was his first start of the year. Carrasco after five. And yes, the lockout, the shortened spring training, the fact they're more back into the rotation. Guys, I understand that this isn't a game in the middle of July where we've got a shutout going and both guys are pulled by the fourth and fifth. But here's the thing. Zach Gallen threw 66 pitches. He had a spring training. 66 pitches? It's not like he threw 85 pitches in four innings. I'd understand that. And here's the thing with Carlos Carrasco, and let's see if Buck proves me wrong on this. I don't think in the middle of July he's handled any differently in this game. Think about it. 
Carrasco gets through five. He gets bailed out on a tremendous play by Jeff McNeil, a great leaping catch against the fence in the fifth inning. Then he gets through the fifth by striking out Cattell Marte, and you've got the heart of the order coming up. Now, granted, the Diamondbacks' heart of the order is most teams seven, eight, nine. But at 82 pitches, third time around the order, five innings, a batter earlier, a guy hits one of the warning track, I think Buck's taking Carrasco out anyway. I'm not convinced that middle of April, second start of the year, was really the reason Carlos Carrasco came out of this game. We are seeing this trend all around baseball, and I understand why. I mean, you do have to follow the numbers. Third time around the order is a struggle for a lot of pitchers right now. So I'm not fully convinced with two lefties coming up in the sixth that Buck's managing this game any differently in July than he did on April 16th. Zach Gallen would have been managed differently. I get that. It's his first start of the year, only through 66 pitches. But we are in a different world. We have to acknowledge that. And as an old school baseball fan that loves a pitcher's duel, it kind of sucks that in the fifth inning of a 0-0 game in which both guys look pretty damn good, they're both out of the game. Jolie Rodriguez needs to be handled with such care because when he faces lefties, for the most part, he's tough. He struck out Peralta. He struck out Paven Smith, and he got very unlucky when Seth Beer had that infield hit on an 0-2 pitch. So I thought Buck handled him very well when he used him in that sixth inning. A lot of it was that the Diamondback lineup allowed it because they're very left-handed when you've got a three, a five, and a six hitter that are all lefty, and you don't have a lot of righties on the bench. The Diamondbacks were conducive for the Jolie Rodriguez lane. But two reasons why they lost this game. Number one, they couldn't hit, and number two, Seth Lugo, which is a worry. When did I know they were going to lose this game? It actually wasn't when Sergio Alcantara hit that two-run homer off Lugo and Marte hit that RBI double because it's the seventh inning, you're still facing the Diamondbacks. I still had this confidence the offense is going to break out. So to me, the moment the game was over was when on the very first pitch in the eighth inning, Pete bounced into the double play. Because City Field in the eighth inning, after Marte hits the two-run homer and it cut it to 3-2, to two, and Lindor draws a four-pitch walk, and then Lindor pulls a Keith Hernandez in which he's pumping his fist as he's walking to first base to, to get Pete Alonso going. That reeked to the 86 Mets, did it not? No, not really. I don't know. My confidence was this game ain't over. And then obviously first pitch when Pete rolls it over into a double play. That's when, yes, it became very obvious. Now, as far as Lugo's concerned, because look, they did hit in this game. Gallon, Nelson, Poppin, Mantiply, Kennedy. They did hit Kennedy. Mark Melanson, easy one, two, three inning. They couldn't hit a very mediocre Diamondback staff. So yeah, you scored two runs against Arizona. It's a big part of why you lose. But Seth Lugo is so important to this team. And we have now seen the very bad Seth Lugo, like we saw in this game on Saturday. And we, we've seen the very good Seth Lugo. And when you look at the way this bullpen is built, Drew Smith has thrown the ball well. I think Adam Adovino in the right spots can be okay. We mentioned the Jolie Rodriguez situation. Chase and Treve's been awesome. I'm not sure how he should be used as the season rolls on or if he can remain this effective. But Seth Lugo is, to me, the most important cog in this bullpen. And right now, only a week and a half into the season, two weeks into the season, he has been so up and down. And even in the course of his appearance on Saturday, you saw that. He comes in, 
He strikes out Carson Kelly and then makes a really bad 2-0 pitch to Alcantara. Now, in fairness, if you remember this at bat, I thought it should have been 0-2 or 1-1. The first pitch he threw to Alcantara looked like a strike. Fairchild missed the call, but it happens. It's baseball. I mean, this is going to happen throughout a season and throughout a game. But Seth Lugo's a problem right now because he is, to me, the most important reliever out of this bullpen, obviously outside of Edwin Diaz as the closer. So Lugo gives up the home run to Alcantara. He gives up that RBI double to Ketel Marte. The bullpen does a pretty good job of keeping it right there, especially out of Vino, who got in a major trouble in that ninth inning but was able to work through it, got a huge strike out of Marte, got a huge strike out of Christian Walker. Problem is the Mets couldn't do a damn thing against Mark Melanson in the ninth, and they lose an annoying game. That's how I'd phrase it. It's an annoying game. I mean, you're not going to win every single game you play, but when you watch the Diamondbacks up close and personal, you know they are a bad, bad baseball team. They have a lineup right now, and granted it's early, in which every single person is hitting 200 or below. Now, Cattell Marte is a real good player. I think David Peralta will obviously get his bat going. So they've got a couple of players. But outside of that, Yanni Hernandez, Sergio Alcantara, Carson Kelly, Paven Smith, Dalton Varsho is something to watch. I mean, the guy can go from playing center field to catcher. It's pretty impressive. But this is, this is not a good Diamondback team. So when you play a team this bad in your own building, at minimum, you got to win two out of three. You got to win every single series. I don't expect to win every single game. It is baseball. So it was a, an annoying, annoying loss on Saturday. <clears throat> but what it does is it sort of puts the pressure on Sunday. And personally, there was a lot of pressure on Sunday because the way I handled Sunday is I did not watch this afternoon game. I was at the first two games of the year at City. I didn't watch the Sunday game until nighttime because as you may or may not know, there was a rather significant basketball game on Sunday afternoon. So after that heartbreak ended, and after I put my boys to sleep and spent some quality time with my wife and ate some dinner, at about 8.30 at night, I said, okay, let's watch Met Baseball. Which I got to tell everybody listening, it's not a bad thing to do on a Sunday. Because Sunday afternoons, you can do other things. And all of a sudden, Sunday night, 9 o'clock, it's like, all right, Let me watch the game. And I swear to you, I had no idea what happened. And I was just hoping the Mets, in a small, small way, and I admit it's small, could ease my pain after that brutal game one loss. You know, a win against the Diamondbacks in the middle of April is not going to erase it, but it would be a nice way to go to bed. That's how I planned my day. I planned my day around, let me end my day with the Mets, and I was watching the Yankee game too. I had no idea about the Yankees, so I watched both of those games. Let the Mets finish my day nicely. And <laughs> maybe it's because of the net game. This game was so freaking frustrating to watch. You're facing Umberto Castellanos. He's walking a bunch of guys. You got the leadoff man on the first two innings of this game. You can't do anything. You get to their bullpen in the fifth inning. Here's Kyle Nelson and no Ramirez. And it was very, very frustrating until, until... Until the Arizona defense handed the Mets a run. Escobar hits that double. Paven Smith, I don't know where the hell he was throwing. I think he was throwing a second base. Goes over the second baseman's head. They get a run. The J.D. Davis decision, and I'll get to Peterson in a second. The J.D. Davis decision was so fascinating. 
So if you don't recall, it's one nothing Mets, bottom of the sixth inning, J.D. Davis with one out, and you've got two men on base. I think it was first and second, if I'm not mistaken, or first and third, if I'm not mistaken. Actually, I think it was yeah, it was first and first and third, first and third, one out, bottom of the sixth, up one nothing. Now, normally, pinch hitting for Jankowski with J.D. Davis against the lefty, the lefty being the infamous Oliver Perez, is an absolute no-brainer. Like, easy decision for Buck. The only reason why I paused on it is this game featured one of the worst wind and sun feels you'll ever see. Every ball to the outfield was an adventure. Starling Marte had one of the worst games you could ever have in right field. He was glad he moved over to center field late in the game. And so because the defense was such a big deal in this game, I'm thinking to myself, all right, if you pinch hit for Jankowski here, yes, you're going for it, but you hurt your defense. Because Travis Jankowski looks great in the center field. I'm not sure about Nick Plummer yet. No, maybe you'll tell me Nick Plummer's a gold glove defensive right fielder. I have no idea. We haven't seen him in the major leagues yet. I assume you're not putting Matt Reynolds in the outfield. I assume you are going to Plummer. You're moving Marte to center, who's had just a horrible day in the field. I'm not sure if being in center field is going to ease all that. It'll be a little bit different, a little bit better, because right field was worse conditions. But my debate is I'm weakening my defense. I'm up one nothing. Should I just play conservative here and say, you know what? Let me trust that Jankowski maybe can come through. He's off to a pretty good start. Maybe make good contact tack on another run, or do I go for the jugular? It was 50-50. I, it's one of those things where you trust Buck, you trust the manager on this, but I understood saying, you know what? Even though normally this is a no-brainer offensively, let me stick with the D. And he went with J.D. Davis, and it worked, especially behind in the county. Pokes one up the middle, tack on another run. James McCann's sack fly, tack on another run. And before you know it, it's a 3 nothing game. And against that Diamondback offense, a three-run lead felt like a seven-run lead which is the opposite of what you normally say. And obviously, Pete Alonso puts the game away in the seventh inning. So interesting decision by Buck that worked out. The other thing that makes Buck look brilliant, and I'm sure this is going to be a major talking point until they play again Monday night, and that's Davis deciding to steal second because of the fact that Diamondbacks were going to appeal Dom Smith leaving too early on the sacrifice fly. It's not overstated for Met fans or baseball fans to say, this is why we love Buck. That's not overstated. It's true. The one thing you want from your team that your manager can instill is being prepared, is understanding the rules of this game, understanding the nuances of this game. This sport will come down to performance. There's only so much a manager can do. If a guy's not going to have a great year, there's only so much a manager can do. But things like this, a manager can control. So for Buck Showalter in spring training to stress, hey, if there's a question about a guy leaving too early off third on a sack fly and you're on first base, get off that base, steal second, confuse the pitcher, and void the appeal play, even if it means an out, because as Buck said after the game, I'll trade an out for a run any day of the week. So I know this is going to be blown up, but it should be blown up. That's what you want from a manager. What you want from a baseball team is to be prepared. That's all all you're asking for. So I don't think it can be talked about too much. I I am so sick and tired as a Met fan as feeling like our managers have no idea what they're doing. And for years, that's the way we felt. 
And you don't have to feel that way with Buck. I've said this before about Buck Showalter. He may make moves we disagree with, though so far not that many. But he will never be unprepared. And this team should never be unprepared. So even though I don't think Dom Smith left early, smart play by J.D. Davis. It worked out great because Oliver Perez had no idea what he was doing. Ends up stepping off, throws to third. J.D. steals second base. Boom. Didn't turn into another run or anything like that, but just just a real smart play. As far as David Peterson's going, look, David Peterson deserved to be in the rotation. We said that to Buck a few days ago after his four scoreless innings in Philadelphia, and it wasn't easy. He put himself into trouble, or I should say Starling Marte put him into trouble, especially in the fourth with that leadoff sun double. But I thought he showed a lot of poise getting through that fourth inning. Uh, As far as when Buck took him out, look, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Third time around the order, it is what it is. I mean, this is is the sport we live in. It takes a lot as a middle or back of the rotation guy, specifically a back of the rotation guy, to get the opportunity to go second time around. So after he gives up that walk to Pordarmo, and that, that sort of made it easy. I think if he gets the first two outs in the fifth, Buck probably allows him to try to get Cooper Hummel and get through the fifth inning. And then I think he's out of the game. And his pitch count was, well, it was around 80. Wasn't crazy high, but first start of the year, he wasn't going to go much more than that. But Trevor Williams does a pretty good job. Chase and Shreve is awesome. I mean, it's unbelievable how good as a Met Chase and Shreve has been. And I said earlier, I'm kind of mixed about how to use him. I, I, I can't look at him and say, hey, this is the lockdown eighth inning guy. Just hand the baseball to Chase and Treve and all will be good. But he's off to a great start this year. He pitched very well in that brief 2020 season. I think he even had a good year with the Pirates last year. He's a solid, hey, I can get a couple of innings out of him on a moment's notice relief pitcher. And he did a great job. It's interesting with him. If you look at his career numbers, the platoon stats, he's the same against lefties, righties. So he's a lefty. He's not a lefty specialist. He's not a guy that you've got to fit into the right hole. You can bring him in, and he brought him in against Paven Smith, but then face right-hand pitching, and he can get him out. It's pretty much even splits against lefties and righties. But he gets them six very, very important outs. Drew Smith does a good job after walking the leadoff hitter in the eighth. And then to get Edwin Diaz some work, he gets through the ninth, and the Mets complete the shutout 5-0. The Mets' starting pitching ERA, I guess, is the best starting pitching ERA through 10 starts in 100 years. With that said, <laughs> I think you know where I'm going with this. With that said, and that's great, and the Mets' starting pitching has been awesome, no doubt about it. You cannot equate this to any other starting pitching record because they don't go deep into games. And that's the sport. That's not a knock on the Mets starting pitching. The Mets starting pitching has been great. They're doing everything that Buck Showalter has asked them to do. But nobody goes past six innings. And a bunch of these starts are in the four-inning variety. Taiwan Walker's start was two innings, granted he got hurt. So, I, I get the stat. I get bringing it up, and I'm only bringing it up to make fun of it. I'm not bringing it up because it means anything. You can say the Mets starting pitching is doing an outstanding job, because it is. There's no debate. 
Chris Bassett's been fantastic. Max Scherzer's battled his way through six innings and five innings, respectively. David Peterson did a good job in his one start. Uh, Taiwan Walker threw two scoreless innings. Carrasco's been great. Over five innings and change in each of his two starts. Am I forgetting anybody? Oh, yeah, Tyler McGill. How could you forget Tyler McGill? Hasn't given up a run yet. But you can't really equate it to any other starting pitching record when the guys are going four or five innings. With that said, they've done a great, great job. And the Mets are off to a fine start. They're seven and three. The schedule's about to get challenging with the San Francisco Giants coming in. Talk about another team that's well-prepared. The Giants are basically picking up where they left off last year after they had that ridiculous 107-win team. So it'll be a nice test over these four games. It'll be interesting to see if Tyler McGill can continue his trend. Exciting to see Max Scherzer pitch his first game at City Field. And hopefully the Mets just keep racking up Ws. That's all you can do early in this season. But they did their job against the Arizona Diamondbacks. As far as when I knew they were going to win this game, to me it's it's sort of simple. It was when they got through the sixth inning. Because the Mets were struggling to score runs in this game. When Christian Walker hits that bloop double, another misplay by Starling Marte. They got a runner on second. They got nobody out. Paven Smith actually hits the ball to the right side of the infield. So they move the runner over. This is when Chase and Treves in the game. And for Shreve to get out of it with the strikeout of Varsho and then a great defensive play by Luis Guillerme. At that point, my confidence was, all right, they're going to find a way to win this game. And luckily, the sixth inning, the bottom of that inning, was when they did it. And they score the three runs in the bottom of the sixth. And they beat the Arizona Diamondbacks 5-0. And they win two out of three. Even though their bats, for a big chunk of this series, did nothing. Over 14 innings. I think they scored just those two runs that they scored on the Marte home run. So their bats were very much quieted down for a significant period of time. But they pitched. They continue to pitch very, very well. And they're starting pitching, even though it's not giving them deep performances, shutting opponents down. Granted, the Arizona Diamondbacks are an anemic offensive team. They're a bad offensive team. But you do what you need to do. So they start this season off with three out of four, Two out of three, and two out of three. Not too shabby. I mentioned before, eventually, um, we'll move this podcast. It'll be a Met-exclusive podcast into its own feed. But for now, you can download it here with the Evan Roberts podcast. Uh, I'll talk to you again after each series. So after the Mets wrap up the series against the Giants on Thursday, probably sometime Thursday night, I'll record another episode and maybe mix in some instant reactions as we roll on. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of the Evan Roberts podcast.